there and welcome to our show, The Shit No One Tells You About Writing. I'm Bianca Murray and I'm joined by Carly Waters and Cece Lira from PS Literary Agency. Hormone harmony is not just a supplement for women going through perimenopause, menopause, or postmenopause. It's become a phenomenon. Women cannot stop talking about it on social media. A bottle of Hormone Harmony is sold every 24 seconds. Happy Mammoth, the company that created Hormone Harmony, is dedicated to making women's lives easier. That means using only science-backed ingredients that have been proven to work for women. They make no compromise when it comes to quality, and it shows. Hormone Harmony contains science-backed herbal extracts called adaptogens. Now, here's the beauty about adaptogens. They help the body adapt to any stressors, like chaotic hormonal changes that happen naturally throughout a woman's life. So, Hormone Harmony isn't just for menopause. Any women with symptoms of hormonal imbalances can take it, but it's perfect for those with those horrible menopause symptoms that put a woman's life on hold. Hot flashes and night sweats, racing thoughts and low moods, poor sleep and feeling tired all the time, occasional bloating and gas, no desire to be in bed next to someone if you know what I mean. Yeah, Hormone Harmony can help with all of these things. And the biggest benefit feeling like myself again. And that's what women mention over and over in the reviews. There are over 17,000 reviews for Hormone Harmony. For a limited time, you can get 15% off your entire first order at happymammoth.com. Just use our code, which is the acronym of the podcast, T-S-N-O-T-Y-A-W at checkout. That's the podcast acronym at checkout at happymammoth.com calling all memoirists. I'm so excited to let you know that I've put together an incredible all about memoir lineup for Saturday the 11th of May from 10 a.m. to 5 p.m. Eastern Time in which six amazing speakers guide you through everything you need to know to write a memoir that will sell. You'll get opportunities to ask questions of best-selling memoirists while also standing a chance to have your query letter live critiqued during the webinar. To see the awesome lineup and to register, go to biancamaray.com. There's an early bird promotion for the first 50 delegates who sign up. Come and join us and get your memoir groove on. Hi everyone, welcome to another episode in which we have our new format where we have the author on the show with us to critique one of your query letters. As we've said, our authors have been through everything you're going through now. They have been in querying trenches, they have struggled to get published and so who better to give you feedback on your work than someone who's been in your shoes. Now today's guest is an award-winning New York Times, USA Today, Irish Times and international best-selling author. Her most recent historical novel set in China during World War II published in the UK, Ireland, Australia, and New Zealand as The Bird in the Bamboo Cage, and in the USA and Canada as When We Were Young and Brave. It was an Irish Times bestseller, a national bestseller in the USA, and was shortlisted for the 2020 Irish Book Awards. So as you can see, you are in brilliant hands today. It's my pleasure to welcome Hazel Gaynor to the show. Hazel, welcome. Hi, thank you so much. What a, what a lovely introduction. <laughs> it's always quite shocking when somebody recaps and sort of catches up on all those things. It's really nice to hear. Thank you. 
That is a very, very impressive bio. It would be impossible to make it not sound amazing. So just for our <laughs> listeners, before we begin, I just want to read you the the sort of jacket copy of The Last Lifeboat, which is the book we're going to be discussing today. So inspired by a remarkable true story, a young teacher evacuates children to safety across perilous waters in a moving and triumphant novel from Hazel. So we have 1940 in Kent, and Alice King is not brave or daring. She's happiest finding adventure through the safe pages of books. But times of war demand courage, and as the threat of German invasion looms, a plane crash near her home awakens a strength in Alice she'd long forgotten. Determined to do her part, she finds a role perfectly suited to her experience as a schoolteacher to help evacuate Britain's children overseas. Then in our other POV, 1940 in London, we have Lily Nichols, who once dreamed of using her mathematical talents for more than tabulating the cost of groceries. But life and love charted her a different course. With two lively children and a loving husband, Lily's humble home is a world until war tears everything asunder. With her husband gone and bombs raining down, Lily is faced with an impossible choice. Keep her son and daughter close, knowing she may not be able to protect them or enroll them in a risky evacuation scheme where safety awaits so very far away. Then when a Nazi U-boat torpedoes the SS Carlisle carrying a ship of children to Canada, a single lifeboat is left adrift in the storm-tossed Atlantic. Alice and Lily, strangers to each other, one on land, the other at sea, will quickly become one another's very best hope as their lives are fatefully intertwined. So holy heck, people, we talk about high stakes on the podcast all the time. And if this book doesn't have high stakes, then I don't know what does. It is an amazing, amazing book. Such a page turner. Before we begin with our first query today, Hazel, I actually want to ask you just to backtrack a bit in terms of your different titles for your most recent novel, Before the Lifeboat. Can you tell our listeners how and why this kind of thing happens in publishing and if you had a say in that decision? Yeah, the the easy answer is it, it happens quite often that a book will have a different title in the different territories it's published in. So there can be many reasons for that. Sometimes it can be as simple as there's a similar book already published in in one of those territories. Um, And that was very much the case with my uh, dual titled The Bird in the Bamboo Cage for the UK, Ireland, uh, Australia, New Zealand market. And then when we were young and brave in the US, there was a, a book with a similar name to when we were young and brave in the UK, Ireland, Australia, New Zealand market. So it sometimes comes down to that. It can come down to feedback from booksellers, from retailers as to what they feel is going to resonate with readers in their market. So I'm very lucky. I don't know if it's always the way that authors get to have an input. It can vary very much between publisher. I was included in discussions it doesn't always mean that you get your own way, you know, that you have a preference that that works and, and actually ends up being the title. I think in hindsight, it was quite confusing for readers to have a book with so they're very different titles. So there's no similar part of that title even in both books. And I have had readers contact me to say they thought they were different books and they'd read one and then got the other. Because obviously on social media, you're talking about a book globally, even if it's 
specifically for a market that you know, but readers looking at social media might not understand that. So I'm delighted that The Last Lifeboat is the same title (laughs) for all of my publishing territories. But it's just one of those sort of odd anomalies of, of publishing and different jackets in the same way. They work differently. Readers in different markets respond to different imagery. They may think a certain cover is evocative of one type of book, where in another market, it's very much not the case. So it's all part of the the publication process that as an author, you're not really aware of, I think, at the beginning. But I, I am included in discussions and my input is certainly taken into account, which is is reassuring. And I think, you know, you learn to trust your publisher and the experts and the sales information that they're getting back, that they are making the right decision and giving your book the best name. And it's often a totally different name to the one you gave it when you pitched or had a working title. And often they boil down to just being known as bird yeah. or lifeboat. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I referred to my first two novels as hum and laugh. So yeah, absolutely. It, it does get contracted. But for our listeners, we say try and pick the best title you can, but as well, you've got to pivot because maybe the publisher doesn't like it or maybe something like this happens. So absolutely. All right. So let's kick off today's Books with Hooks segment. Carly, will you read the first query letter? All right, here we go. Dear Carly, Cece and Bianca, seven years after a terrible fire killed her best friend and burned down their prestigious Ivy League research lab, the once promising young woman, Lexi Evans, finds herself laid off cynical and saddled with student loans she has no hope of ever repaying. So when she finds herself at the prestigious Green Climate Change Conference in Italy, not as a presenter, but as her fiancé's Jack's reluctant plus one, Lexi has never felt more of a failure, a ruin of mislaid dreams that no amount of perfect sun or palate enlightening wine or scalding sea white Sicilian architecture is ever going to come close to fixing. Good thing she's in for a surprise. At the dilapidated family villa, where he's left her while he's off giving the conference's keynote speak, Jack has arranged for a visit from the past, a reunion of their once tight-knit grad school biology cohort to cheer her up. Too bad not everyone is so keen on the academic family reuniting. Someone knows that the fire from seven years ago was no accident, and April was no victim. Soon, Lexi finds herself caught up in the shadowy tangle of academic sabotage, twisted dreams, and spiraling corporate greed, uncertain whom she could trust. To survive, she will need to understand to what lengths her once best friends are willing to go to protect their ambition and how far she's willing to go to save her own. You know what they say, keep your friends close, but keep your lab mates closer. Like It Never Happened, complete at 75,000 words, is a thriller where the lush settings and group secrets of White Lotus Season 2 meets the scientific voice of Lab Girl. Ambition, scientific sabotage, and murder set in the bright, wine-drenched world of abandoned Italian chateaus and simmering cerulean summer seas. I graduated summa cum laude with a BS in neuroscience, received my DVM from Redacted, and did both an internal medicine fellowship and surgical residency at Redacted. I know more than just what promise, debt, and academic ambition can do to your life. When not writing, I can be found traveling, hiking, or forcing my perfect, if arthritic, 15-year-old black lab and two spoiled cats to listen to my dreamed-up stories. I really appreciate the podcast. Thank you for your time and consideration. Sincerely, Redacted. Thank you, Carly. I like to say keep your friends close and your enemies closer, but that's just me. Right. Okay. So what what was the word count there and what was your take on that? 
All right, this one came in at 389 words. So I, I posted on Twitter this morning because I think I've told you guys I read everything right before we actually record the podcast so everything is fresh in my mind. And so I posted on Twitter this morning. I was like, thank God I got this query. Bianca sent it to me because I really liked it. I don't have to fight Cece for this one. I am um, jealous. Request it and read more. <laughs> <laughs> can, can I just say... It's not Bianca playing favorites. It's that the author specifically requested that Carly get this particular I am still jealous. (laughs) (laughs) I always feel like it's like a matchmaker situation and Bianca is Cupid's arrow and she's like figuring out where she's going to, where she's going to fire it. (laughs) So I, as I said, I really, I really liked this one for obvious reasons. I think anybody listening can be like, wow, that sounds like a great book that I want to read right now. So I will go through the normal critique kind of situation and obviously I'm giving some more of my feedback. So, so starting off, I really like it. And I've talked about this before. So here is the third paragraph. It's the title paragraph, the word count, the comps, the hook paragraph is at the top. And for me, the reason that I like it that way is it's just, it frames my entire understanding of the words to come. So it's not that this way is bad. A lot of agents like it this way. I just find sometimes it's hard to wrap my head around things if I don't know certain things. So for example, for this one, it says a terrible fire killed her best friend and burned down the prestigious Ivy League research lab. So to me, I'm like, is she an undergrad? Is she a grad student? Is she PhD? Is this her lab? Is she the boss at this lab, right? Like, is she the actual researcher? Like there's, that really frames my understanding of, again, what this book is about. So I really wasn't sure on her age. So at start at the beginning, I kind of made her sound young. And then obviously, as we go on, I realize she has a fiance. So potentially, she is not as young as we think. So but again, you can be you know, engaged at 20. So as I said, wasn't fully clear on that. So I would really just like to know a little bit more about her age and what level she was at in the lab, because anybody who has any proximity to a lab knows it's very important, the hierarchy of of who's who in the lab. I really just liked it. I mean, the stakes are really high. The drama is high. We have history. We have academia. We have Italy. We have a kind of a closed room mystery when all these friends get back together. A comp you didn't use that you could potentially use. I came up with two more. The Villa by Rachel Hawkins. That was an obvious comp to me that we kind of potentially missed because what you have is a TV show comp and Lab Girl. And I could be wrong. I thought that one was a memoir, but again, I could be wrong. So again, we don't really have like a thriller comp here. So I thought The Villa could be a good one. And because it's more of a closed door situation, I almost felt like Knives Out was a better comp than White Lotus, even they do kind of cover obviously a lot of similar thematic tones, but I was kind of thinking Knives Out. But yeah, I mean, I at the bottom of my notes, I was like, please send me this. And obviously, I will be requesting it because the pitch did its job. It's a great pitch. Awesome, Carly. Thank you. I hope the author is doing their happy dance wherever they are listening to this episode. If you are out in the wild and you see someone listening to something and suddenly breaking out into dance moves and celebratory gyrating, maybe it's one of our listeners. Okay, so Carly, what was in those opening pages? All right. So we start with, it's not called a prologue, but it's kind of a prologue. We have Winter Boston 2010. We have a one page in italics and it is covering the funeral of the friend. So we know that the friend had passed. So it's Winter Boston 2010, a funeral setting. uh, And we have our main character commenting on being at the funeral. And it says kind of the idea that her friend would have hated this funeral and kind of speaking a little bit to, to a little bit of backstory. So then the next page is Summer, Italy, seven years later. So we're assuming it's present day. Our main character has just gotten off a plane. She is getting into her rental car. She is taking the rental car from the airport through Sicily, through lots of winding roads to a villa. And we find out that the villa 
was a family property that no one had been to or kind of set eyes on in about 30 to 50 years, something like that. Um, so it's very dilapidated, but it is a family villa. And so through the winding roads and the drive, she's commenting on her fiance who's going to meet her there. She kind of pulls over at one point to send him a quick text. She's kind of revisiting a lot of memories, but it's done in a very, very good way. And we know that there's a lot of tension and drama kind of built up towards this drive and where we're going. Yeah, I'm glad you added that because I was going to say we generally caution on the podcast, don't have your character beginning alone when they're by themselves. It can be boring. So clearly they, they did a really good job of making sure that didn't happen. Absolutely. So because I like this query and this pitch and this project so much, I will focus on things that I enjoyed about it because that's obviously a nice celebratory thing to talk about. So in the funeral scene, I'll read you I'll read you the first line here. It says, I remember standing out in the field, light fading, thinking how ironic it was to be burying her now. And it talks about, about how like she was buried in the middle of winter and how grumpy she would have been about winter. And then the last line, but most of all, of all the things that April her best friend would have hated about her own funeral. The thing that she would have reviled most was me, period. And that's the end of our little kind of italicized opening. And then we get into the present. And so another, I want to read the first line of that, of this section as well. Because again, you can kind of see just the level of specificity and they're very sensorial, but they're not overdone or distracting. So here's an example. The soft tapping of my rental keys against the hot metal dash filled the car as I drove up the narrow single lane road, sheer green cliff face to one side, vast flat wine glass ocean to the other. And so that's a long sentence. The next sentence, Sicily, period. Right. So it's like long. We're getting all this like lush details. And then it's like period. Next sentence is one word. Right. Sicily, period. So it's like we're showing our contrast. Right. We're exercising all of those great muscles. And then the next line was another long one. So again, we had that short one sandwiched in there. Land of sun and myth. And so we get into a bit of the mythology of Sicily here. And at first I was like, I don't know if we need this, but it kind of sets the tone for what to come. So. Land of sun and myth, birthplace of Mount Edna, and, if one were to believe Varro, home to the fiery forges of the god Vulcan, his golden body buried beneath the volcano, spine hunched over, leg twisted, forever driving metal against stone. And we have this idea that's like, there's this undercurrent of something underneath the surface, right? So I'm like, do we need it? Not particularly, but does it set the tone in a cryptic way? Yeah, and, and I think I think it works here. Okay, another thing I wanted to focus on is, you know, a lot of times agents will always say like that voicey is good or voicey is bad. And everybody's like, what does voicey mean? When is voicey good? And when is voicey bad? So I want to read you something where voicey is good, a good example of voicey. So it says, and so this is what she's driving through. She says, the road, and I use that term generously here, took a sharp turn to the right. So again, I'm just, I'm fragmenting that, but you see how it's like, she's kind of talking to the, the reader or the listener. We have this idea that's like, she's pulling us in close, you know? The road, and I use that term generously here, you know, it's like that that idea, it's like we're bringing this person into us. I really, I really liked that. That's an example of voicey, where it's not like, I'm not voicey in terms of like showing off my lyrical writing abilities. It's like, how do I literally like grab the reader by the lapel and just like drag them close to my face, right? That's the kind of thing that I, that I think works really well here. So Really, we have great, really rich descriptions and undercurrent of drama. And I think the, the balance here is working really well. Awesome, Carly. Thank you. A great place to bounce off of from there. You mentioned that this piece started with a prologue. So, Hazel, what I want to chat to you about is you begin the lifeboat with a prologue that throws us straight into the action in 1940. 
we see Alice King jumping into a lifeboat after the ship she's on has been torpedoed. It is chaotic. We see people being swept away from the lifeboats. Everyone's running around in their pajamas, in a panic. It's dark. No one can tell the difference between the sky and the water. Alice is terrified. There are children in the boat. A man is asking her to take care of them. Now, this scene is extremely, extremely compelling. It's filled with tension, conflict, action. But here's the thing for our listeners. It's incredibly difficult to pull off this kind of beginning because the reader is not yet fully invested in the characters before the bad thing happens. And on the podcast, we often caution emerging writers against using this kind of beginning for that exact reason. Because if you don't care about the character, how are you going to care about the peril that they're in? And yet Hazel pulls it off so utterly perfectly. We don't know yet who Hazel is. We don't know who any of these characters are but we're immediately invested. So Hazel, how did you go about doing that? And what is your advice for other writers who are trying to do the same thing? Well, thank you, first of all, for saying that I pulled it off. Yeah, I mean, it's, we thought long and hard. And when I say we, I'm talking about my two editors, about where the book always started here. Okay, I'll start with that. The book, naturally, when I started to write it, this was the very first these are the words I put down before I really got into the meat of the book. And I'm not really a planner. I'm I'm a bit of a pantser. So I don't always have my books mapped out. But this opening dramatic scene of Alice in the midst of utter terror in the middle of the Atlantic, in the middle of the night, jumping off a sinking ship was where I went first when I started to write this story. And for me, that was a really natural place to start because it's it was the dramatic entry point for me into finding this real piece of history. And this is all based on true events. And and that naturally was my way in to to this. And it it doesn't always remain that what you've written first, in fact, it often goes, doesn't it, that you've overwritten too much at the beginning. And I think a lot of emerging writers, they're still finding the story themselves. So they tell a lot of the story at the beginning of the book. Whereas to hook in the reader, often we need to jump in three or four chapters in to that opening storytelling almost that the the writer has been telling themselves. And I think it, the, the real premise of this story is the aftermath of this horrific torpedo attack on a ship taking young evacuees from Liverpool to Canada. So to draw the reader in, to really hook into that, the, the whole crux of this story was why we made the decision to stick with Essentially, it's a prologue, although it's not really pitched in the book per se as a prologue. It's really just the opening chapter to the book. And what we then do is go back in time four months. And it's quite a short opening chapter. It's very pacey. So because of the action that's happening on the page, it's quite a quick read. So it's it's not lingering a lot on description. It's very action driven. So the reader can get to the end of that quite quickly. And then we go back in time, four months, so not far back in time. And that's when we start to understand, okay, who is this Alice who's found herself in this horrendous situation? How did she get there? Why is she reluctant to help these children? What was she trying to do? And that's when we sort of take a deep breath. So it's almost like this crazy drama at the beginning and then a little bit of a deep breath. And 
it's that light and shade, isn't it, that we often talk about in in books. We can't be adrenaline full on all the time. As a reader, we need a little bit of breathing space to fully invest in this world or these characters or this event. But it really came, as I say, from a very organic, natural place that this was the starting point for the whole story that's about to unravel. And it's great to hear that it works because, as you say, we haven't had time to care about Alice, but hopefully we're already hooked into her story because nobody wants to be in a lifeboat in the middle of the Atlantic with children after their ship has been torpedoed. So who are these people? And I suppose you turn it on its head. Who are they? Who are these children? And then when we meet other characters in the book as it unfolds, we'll start to really become anxious about who is in the lifeboat and what's their fate going to be. So that was really the decision for writing it that way. Yeah. Yeah. And and something else is we caution against starting with something so high octane and then going to something mundane because you can have like a tension kind of deflating tension from high octane to something ordinary. But for our listeners, what Hazel's done here is we go back four months before and even though it's kind of an ordinary day, it is still wartime and they are talking about Hitler and they're talking about the advance and they're talking about the approaching war. So we haven't gone from something high octane to something that's just so commonplace and every day, we still have tension in those opening pages so that all the tension that we were promised at the front doesn't completely deflate. So that's something to consider for your own work. Right, Hazel, will you read us your query letter now, please? Absolutely. Dear Carly, Such Arts as These is a work of historical fiction set in Florence, Italy, between 1473 and 1480. The novel is Girl with a Pearl Earring meets Netflix's Medici the Magnificent and will appeal to readers who enjoyed Alyssa Palombo's The Most Beautiful Woman in Florence and Stephanie Story's Raphael Painter in Rome. Such Arts as These tells the story of Ginevra de Benci, my accent, Italian accent isn't great, <laughs> the subject of Leonardo da Vinci's first portrait. Ginevra uses her advantageous arranged marriage to infiltrate the Medici's inner circle, charming Florence's de facto leader, Lorenzo de Medici, with her wit and poetry. She quickly gains notoriety throughout the city for her talent and beauty. Following a popular Medici tradition, Venetian ambassador Bernardo Bembo chooses Ginevra as his platonic muse. But when the Medici tire of his excessive gambling and borrowing, he attempts to regain their favour by claiming credit for Ginevra's accomplishments and extorting their relationship. Through the power of her words and the art of Leonardo da Vinci, who has been commissioned to paint her portrait, Ginevra tries to salvage her reputation and reclaim her life and her story from the men who would control her. The novel comes in at 96,000 words and explores the issues of identity, gender, power and LGBTQIA themes. I'm a freelance writer with numerous publishing credits, including Self, Bloomsburg, City Lab, Parents, Savoir and The Atlantic. I hold an MFA in creative writing from Redacted and I'm a member of the Georgia's Writers Association, the Historical Novel Society and the Atlanta Writers Club. Other affiliations include the Renaissance Society of America and the Medici Archive Project, which inform my writing. Thank you so much for taking the time to read and evaluate my submission. I look forward to your feedback. Sincerely, Redacted. 
We just registered my youngest kid for kindergarten. I cannot believe it. One of the tricky things about my kids being in French immersion school and not having French as a language myself is I'm honestly worried about how I'm going to assist with homework as they get bigger. They're young now, but I see it coming. We are honestly so lucky, though, to live in a city that's bilingual and we have bilingual friends and francophone friends. So I know it's going to be easy for our kids to pick it up. Me, on the other hand, I am worried about me. I grew up somewhere where French class was not taken seriously, and now I have to make up the difference. And that's where Rosetta Stone comes in. As the most trusted language learning program available on desktop or as an app, it really immerses you in the language you want to learn. Rosetta Stone teaches through immersion, which is a proven way to learn a language. Instead of memorizing and drilling vocabulary words, you learn by matching audio from native speakers to visuals, reading stories, participating in dialogues, and other practical language skills to fast-track your ability to communicate fluently. There are no English translations in the product. You're honestly getting trained to listen, speak, read, write, and think in your new language, which is what everybody wants. Rosetta Stone users especially love the speech recognition feature. As you practice speaking, Rosetta Stone uses advanced voice recognition technology to match your audio, the audio from native speakers, and then give you feedback on how well you're pronunciating the words so you can really hone those pronunciations. It offers 25 languages from Spanish, French, Italian, German, Chinese, Korean, Japanese, even Dutch, Arabic, and Polish. This is the best language program because they have been an expert in the language learning field for 30 years and used by millions. Thousands of companies and government organizations use Rosetta Stone to support language training online. Of all the apps, Rosetta Stone uses the best speech recognition technology, so it compares your sound waves to those of a native speaker for better feedback to improve. They have a patented speech recognition engine called True Accent, which is built into the program. As you practice speaking, you'll get feedback on how well you're pronunciating words. The other language learning apps use speech recognition to detect what you said, but Rosetta Stone tells you how well you said it compared to native speakers. It's like having a personal trainer for your accent. Think about the cost of a one month language course. Think about the cost of one hour private tutoring sessions. With Rosetta Stone, you enjoy lifetime membership and accessibility on desktop or app. We have a special offer for you guys. That's 50% off. That's a lifetime access to 25 language courses on Rosetta Stone for 50% off. This is a steal. Do not put off learning that language. There is no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, the shit no one tells you about writing listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. That We want you guys to go visit rosettastone.com slash today. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com slash today, today. Hi, everyone. This is Cece. If you're a fan of books with hooks, then you've probably heard me use the term interiority. I often catch myself saying things like, these pages need more interiority, or the interiority here needs work. And that's because interiority is a super important element of storytelling. It's what makes books unique. But as it turns out, a lot of you have questions about what exactly is interiority and how to properly weave it into stories, which is why I'm teaching my popular writing interiority class in a new two-day format. We'll meet on Thursday, June 6 at 8 p.m. via Zoom to cover all things interiority, including the difference between interiority and emotions, how interiority is different from telling, how to leverage interiority into plot points, how to strike a balance between interiority and mystery, and more. And then we'll meet again for a live cozy Q&A session on Monday, June 10th, also at 8 p.m. via Zoom, in which you'll have the opportunity to turn your camera on if you choose. If you're interested, check out the link in my bio on Instagram, and I hope to see you there.
Wonderful, Hazel. Thank you. And for our listeners, you can see that we are trying to pair up genres in terms of this is historical fiction, and so we've got a historical fiction author to critique it. So, Hazel, what was your take on that query letter? Yeah, so I immediately was brought into the setting. So if you say to me, historical fiction set in Florence, Italy, between 1473 and 1480, I'm in, quite quite frankly. I thought the comp titles were really strong. So again, Girl with a Pearl Earring, anybody who has enjoyed historical fiction based around art is instantly going to think of Tracy Chevalier's uh, novel. So I thought that was a really strong comp title. And then again, with the with the Netflix, I thought that was a really good example as well. And then two others, very art-based novels. So I thought they were very strong comps and, and certainly brought me in. I talked a little bit about the the setting. Is this a real person was, was my next question. So I think with historical novels, what I always want to know as a reader is how much of this is fiction and how much of it is historical fact. And, and similarly to where Carly was talking about her submission, what, what are the details that you want to know and that can make a real difference? So I wanted to know, is Ginevra de Benchy a real person or is this somebody that the author has created as a fictional muse to Leonardo da Vinci and that's probably a very obvious you know if people understand this era but I I just felt that would really have helped signpost to me where are we going with this so I would certainly recommend wherever you can particularly with a historic setting event person in particular state in your submission based on the true life story of this particular person, it really helps to signpost. There was an, a, a lot to hook me in, in terms of who is this person? And I, and, and I particularly was drawn to, if you like, the last paragraph of that, that opening uh, main paragraph. So there's detail about the political situation in Florence, talks a little about the leader, uh, Lorenzo de' Medici, popular traditions, an ambassador, and the Medici men gambling and borrowing which is scene setting. But I always, when I'm reading a submission or reading pages, I always, I physically respond. So I almost lean forward and I'm always looking for that when I'm reading something, where am I reacting physically? And I, I leaned forward when I got to this bit through the power of her words and the art of Leonardo da Vinci, who has been commissioned to paint her portrait. I'm like, whoa, hang on. This is amazing. This is the Mona Lisa but it's not, it's somebody else. It's somebody we don't know who predated the Mona Lisa. So that to me is the real hook in this pitch. And I think the author could really amplify that, draw us into that and and about a woman incredibly powerful, a, a woman salvaging her reputation and reclaim her life and her story from the men who would control her that's really powerful. And I think that if the author could embellish that, that's what I want to know in this pitch. That's what's hooking me in. Yeah, so I, I really thought it, 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 was a, it was a strong pitch in terms of hitting a lot of the buttons on what is a historical novel and, and where are we going. Talking about titles, we just talked about mine. I think there could be some thoughts about what is going to be a commercially hooky title for for a novel like this I think I always would say to an author try and think commercially your creative heart will create a title try and think if you're a reader 
in a bookshop or in a busy airport and you've five minutes to choose a book, what does that title tell you instantly? And is it, is the hook here Da Vinci? Yes. So, you know, can we play on that? Can we move closer to telling us what it is in in the title? Because there's so many great things in here. And I think it's a shame to not refer to that somehow, somewhere. So I hope that's helpful. But it it certainly did make me lean forward, (laughs) which is is always a good thing. Amazing. Amazing. Thank you. Right. So so can you give us an indication of what was in those opening pages? Just an overview for our listeners. Yeah. So the, the author then continues, we don't actually have a date at the start of the first page of the sample pages that were given. And I think particularly with a historical, although we have a time frame in the synopsis in the pitch, tell us where we are. Tell us exactly where and when we are at the top of your first page and chapter, just so the reader can settle and know where we are. She takes us very quickly into Ginevra, into our heroine, into Ginevra's world. She's in a convent with a dear friend, Nencia. They're both named within the first couple of paragraphs, which again is very important so that we understand whose story we're reading and, and who these characters are. They're both reading and we get a lot of detail in the opening couple of pages about Ginevra's love of books and that she's distracted from her day um, and lessons in the convent because she's drawn into a book. So we start to understand her character. She's a bookworm. She reminded me a little bit of Maria from The Sound of Music. She's not ticking the boxes of of a young lady in, in a convent. So we move on from that then, we're, we're a couple of pages actually of, of description about the setting and how how she ended up in the convent, her sort of family background. And then we get to towards the bottom of page two. And again, here's where I leaned forward. There's a paragraph that starts, the heavy bell in the convent tower rang out its doleful reverberating toll. Ginevra's stomach dropped. Nencia's head jerked up at the sound, panic on her face. Their next lesson would begin once the bell had finished striking. With a groan, Ginevra smacked her palm against her forehead at her negligence. She had lost track of time yet again on account of a book. And then they're running. Then there's there's a lot of pace. They're rushing through um, the convent, trying to get to their lesson in time. There's some gorgeous description about where they are. The hall was empty and bright with sunlight. Their slippers pattered softly as they rang. You know, lots of really lush historical detail that that we really want and then they come across a nun who's sort of berating them for you shouldn't be here you should be in your lesson and there's a lovely exchange of dialogue where we start to see their characters Ginevra they're a little bit of back talking which again I made a note reminded me of the sisters in the sound of music although I know it's a totally different era so I did think my advice would be to maybe consider at what point you want a reader to jump into this story. And for me, I wanted to dwell more when we got to that, the the toll of the bell, which signaled action and they were late. And then you can slowly then, once you've brought us into their world, then you can go back a little bit later and tell us how did they get there? Why is she in a convent? What's the family situation? So I think bring us right into her world because there's so much to love in those pages um, and maybe hold back some of that opening detail just for pace and to, to you know to, to hook the reader into these two girls and again similarly to Carly I'm not sure how old she is so give us a clue somewhere about how old are these girls are they little girls I don't think they are 
just give us some framework about how 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 the age profile of these characters but i really liked it i it kept me reading which obviously is is the main the main sign i i wanted a little more maybe what's the conflict you know beyond being late for the lesson what's the overall conflict and i did wonder if she might consider doing something similar to how we've talked about my scene in the last lifeboat maybe we could start with her ginevra sitting for her portrait with da vinci bring us right into the real hook of this whole story and then maybe take us back one year earlier or however far you know closer in time or back in time because I think that's a real strong factor in this whole story so could we even consider starting in his studio he's about to paint her portrait who is she why is she angry upset etc and then we go back to learn more about her so that just might be something to consider in how the story is is framed Amazing, Hazel. I, I really like that. And for our listeners, when you find yourself in early pages giving your readers context and backstory, think about how you can withhold that and use it as a curiosity seed instead. So instead of telling the reader straight out the gate how they got there, etc., etc., sort of hint at it, and then later on when you give that information, it'll feel like a payoff rather than just exposition. Something you said there as well, Hazel, that I'd like to ask about your own book. You said that you got to the point where you saw the lovely historical details which you want to see in historical fiction. Now, when I was reading your book, there's a detail that gave me goosebumps on page 13, in which it states that the ministry booklets contain details like how to humanely exterminate the family pet if need be. And that just stopped me dead in my tracks. It was horrifying. And I suddenly thought, well, of course, in a time of war, this is something you may have to do. How is this something I've never thought about before? So for our listeners who are writing historical fiction, how do you find these kinds of details? Because specificity is key. Specificity is what brings a story to life and makes it feel real. So how do you find these kinds of specific details and how do you incorporate them organically into the book so that it doesn't feel like an info dump? Yeah, and and, and I think that's the most important part of, of any historical novel is it should never feel like an info dump, a history lesson, or an author showing off. <laughs> I think it's a there's a very fine line isn't there between adding authenticity and detail to frame the setting and jarring the reader pulling them out so it does suddenly feel like oh there's some research here i i think for any historical era an author is writing in just try to read as as widely and as varied accounts from that era as you can i think with something like the second world war there's obviously an enormous amount of written documentation. I mean, we have handwritten letters, uh, diary entries through the mass observation diaries that I also included a reference to in The Last Lifeboat. Ordinary men and women and children documenting their responses to this horrendous global event and how it was interrupting, sometimes quite inconveniently, their day-to-day lives. And I think, you know, a a modern reference point for that for all of us now is COVID, you know, and how in and amongst this enormous event, it's the day-to-day minutiae of life, the interruptions, the disappointments. And I think that's where I, I feel you can really bring a reader into your world by not forgetting the day-to-day concerns, 
worries and troubles. And obviously, if you have a pet and that somebody is suggesting that in order to deal with pets not being able to go into air raid shelters, people not being able to afford to feed their pets because of rationing during the war. So it was suggested that a humane response to that would be to, here's a list of instructions to help you exterminate your pet. You know, we can all relate to that in in a, in a way that historically it almost erases that period of time because we, I think, you know, if you have a pet, if you have a child, you can relate to those concerns that people experienced 75, 80 years ago. And that to me is where history becomes relatable to a, a contemporary reader. So I would really encourage anybody writing in any era, read factual historic accounts, read any first person. If you can get your hands on primary source material, real people who lived through that time and get the detail from them. And it was actually from a letter I read in a a collection of responses to war that somebody was talking about this Ministry of War uh, leaflet. There was lots of information. And one of those was how to exterminate your pet. And it similarly stopped me in my tracks. I was like, oh my goodness, I hadn't ever considered that. And I think that's often where you can, as I say, draw readers in. It's a very relatable world all of a sudden in and amongst this enormous global event. It's the tiny details that bring a book to life. I I really think, you know, that they're there, but find a way to bring them authentically into your character's story. Agree with you, 100% there. Right, okay, so we're going to go to our last query letter, Cece. Let's do this. Dear Cece, Lyra, Carly, and Bianca, thank you for the opportunity to submit my query and first five pages for your critique. The Shit No One Tells You About Writing is my favorite writing podcast, and it's always a treat to listen to an episode. You state on your manuscript wish list that you enjoy novels which deal with female friendships and feature flawed protagonists. My novel skews more commercial than your tastes, but I really enjoy your thoughtful critiques and ideas on the podcast, so I thought I would submit to you. I hope you will enjoy Redacted, my 98,000-word adult contemporary fantasy. The novel is for readers who like the what happens after the happily ever after question posed in The Lost Girls by Sonia Hartle, the tone of Payback's a Witch by Lana Harper, and the open supernatural world of the Southern Vampire Mysteries by Charlene Harris. Georgia is sick of Corin, her vampire ex. She dumped him because she wants to embrace being human for the first time in years. For her, that means hanging out with her two best friends, focusing on university, and figuring out what she wants to do with her life. Unfortunately, Corin said forever, and a little thing like Georgia's opinion doesn't change anything. During one of his many stalking sessions, he hints that she'll soon be begging for his protection, teaming up with her hot witch flatmate, Jake. A horrified Georgia discovers that Corin is part of a plot to strengthen vampire compulsion. The goal is to put supernatural creatures on top, but Georgia fears Coran's true aim is to control her indefinitely. Georgia and her friends race to find the key spell ingredients before the plotters. As they search, Georgia struggles to stamp out her festering feelings for Coran and wars with her growing attraction to and reliance on Jake. She knows she can't let either man derail her recently won independence. However, when Jake gives up, After finding 
then losing the ingredients, Georgia realizes it's time to charge. Relying on her inner strength and her own instincts, she's going to stop the plot and drop Corin from her life once and for all. I'm an English and media graduate whose first love luckily did not go the way of my protagonists. In fact, I married him, and we live together in Manchester, England with our three-year-old son. Thank you for your time and consideration. Awesome, Cece. Thank you. Okay, what was the word count there, and what was your take on that? This one came in at 415 words. So from the very top. Is this dual timeline? Because the pages made me think that it might be. So if it is, this needs to go in your query letter. The hook is very cool, right? Like the what happens after the happily ever after. I was really, really curious when I read that paragraph. So you're doing a really great job at piquing my curiosity at the start of the query letter. When it comes to the plot paragraphs, I thought we needed more specificity particularly specificity when it comes to centering this in the protagonist's life. Here's what I mean by that. Georgia discovers that Corin is a part of a plot to strengthen vampire compulsion. The goal is to put supernatural creatures on top. My concern is it seems to be focused on the world more than on her. I get that it's her ex-boyfriend. I get that he hinted that she'll need his protection. World really matters in stories where it's fantasy, but the heart of the story the character's journey, that really matters too. The hero really matters. So you used Charlene Harris as a comp. And in that story, Suki needs to solve the murder that's happening in Bontam, the string of murders, find the actual killer, because or else she might become a next victim since everyone who's being murdered is in a relationship with a vampire and she is in a relationship with a vampire. And also because her brother's a suspect and also her boyfriend's a suspect. So she is very invested. There's a lot of motivation for her to go on this journey, right? And it's not that I don't see any motivation here because you are telling me there's a plot. She has to race to find the spells, but it does seem a little too high level. Right? It's not specific enough. I'd rather it be a little bit more specific. I just want you to dial up the specificity and therefore the tension. I will say also that the author paragraph is really adorable. So I really enjoyed that. Thank you, Cece. Okay, what was in the opening pages? So at first, we're in 2021. This is present day. And we're inside the, the protagonist's head. And the protagonist is thinking about how every time she said it was the last time and every time after the ordeal was over, she hated herself for it. And she's telling her ex-boyfriend, look, you have to leave now. And he's essentially saying, like, you're mine forever. And she's telling him, you have to leave. And if you don't leave, I'm going to go to the police and I'm going to tell them what you did. And he's like, that was months ago and you have no proof. And she was like, well, they'll believe the human. They always believe the human. And then he leaves. And then when morning comes, because this is obviously in the middle of the night because he's a vampire, when morning comes, there's a really uncomfortable interaction with her roommate, Jake. She thinks about how she needs to make things right with him. Clearly, there's like tension there. We're not sure what it's about exactly. And then she's texting with, with her friend. And then we have a past timeline, very short, in 2017, where she is with Amy. That's the friend she was texting when they're at a bar. And Amy's like, don't look, but a vampire's staring at you. And she's like, he's really hot. What a shame he's dead. Great. Okay, Cece, what was your take on them? So I'll read a line and I'll give you a line note. Suggestion. The words sounded hollow after four months. I should have recorded them on my phone and played them from my phone to save time. 
you don't have to say that both of them are going to happen on your phone, right? Like, so I would go through this. This is just an example, but I would go through this and I would just like remove stuff that is there. There's extra words. If you tighten it, the pace will go a little faster. And that's just good for commercial fiction for any really story, but especially commercial fiction. Now, a big picture note. It is implied that they just had sex, right? Like it's not explicitly stated, but it is very clearly implied. So you have an opening scene in which a woman just had sex with her ex and she hates herself for it. Do not get me wrong. This is very relatable. A lot of people will understand this, right? Because sometimes we desire things that aren't good for us, right? So if that is the goal, my note will make sense. If that is not the goal, then I just have a different vision for this. Right now, she is hating herself and she's not giving us any hints of desire. It's almost like she's being assaulted by him. She keeps telling him for the last time, I don't want you anymore. And her interiority doesn't say anything about how, you know, don't let it show that that when he gets near you, you, you want him. There's nothing like that. There is a reference to her heart racing, but he is the one telling her, like, your heart races when I get near you. And we don't have context on whether that heart racing is is fear or desire or a mix of both. And again, by the way, I get this is a toxic relationship. So of course it's going to be messy. Messy is great territory for storytelling. But right now it's just anger and fear. There's no desire. The two active emotions in storytelling are fear and desire conveyed through surprise. We need to see the desire unless you want me to be reading a scene in which she's being assaulted. So, because right now that it's, it's like borderline that. Like he is saying, you're going to, you're going to be with me. And she's saying no. And so it's really creepy in the consent aspect of this. So I would just up the desire if this is your intention. If this is not your intention, if actually this person is, you know, borderline assault is happening. I don't think you should start with this scene. It's too disturbing. It's too dark. And I don't think it's the best opening scene for a novel like this. You can have it later, but not now. I also wondered about the past timeline, right? Because... In the query letter, we didn't really get an indication that it was dual timeline. So is this sort of like something that's going to happen just so we can see how they met? Because if so, I don't think we need it. Or is it actual dual timeline? And if so, I'm kind of interested in knowing like what is the plot points, like what are the plot points going to be for the second timeline? So I, I guess essentially what I'm saying is I'm not loving the dynamics between her and, and Corin. It's it's too creepy. So we need to understand through interiority that it's not coercion. We need to understand that she's attracted to him, that she's betraying her own self, right? Like her body is betraying her mind, maybe something like that. So yeah, I, I would just work on calibrating that. Thank you, Cece. Right, we've got time for one more question for Hazel before we, we have to wrap up today. In terms of writing dual POV narratives, Hazel, you've got two third-person woman narrators. We've got Alice and we've got Lily. What is the biggest challenge for an author in keeping the readers invested equally in each of those timelines? And how is that something that you approach? Well, I think as with anything in, in a novel, everything has to earn its place. So you can't just put something in because you felt like it needed to be either dual timeline or dual narrative everything has to have a reason and I think particularly with with the last lifeboat the decision to tell this event from two points of view was to show two alternating experiences of one event so here we have Alice who's in the lifeboat missing and then we have back in London experiencing the blitz Lily who is a mother of some of the children who were on the torpedoed ship And at the beginning, we don't know what has happened to her children. 
So you've got two very different experiences of a shared event. And it, for me, was really important to do that. And I've done that quite a lot with my books is to show one event through multiple points of view. And I think that adds a point of interest for the reader. So there's a back and forth. And obviously, you're foreshadowing with something like my opening scene of Alice in the drama of what's just happened. And that there are children asking about where their mother is. And then we move to meet a mother who has gone through this agonizing decision of whether to keep her children in London at the risk of bombing raids or to evacuate them to the safety of another country. And I think that adds a level of intrigue for a reader. It's that dynamic that you can build up. So you you can build up and continue to progress with the story by moving on through somebody else's point of view. So I think you have to be careful of not being repetitive. So not using two narrators to narrate the same thing in alternating chapters, because that slows the pace, it starts to feel draggy. It's like, I've seen this already. So for me, it's about moving the story on through alternating points of view of a shared experience. And I think if both characters are fully developed are distinct and unique. So they're not too similar because again, that can be confusing. I've read a lot of novels where I'm like, who is this now? Or they have a similar sounding name even, and you're not sure whose voice it is anymore. So I think be very clear about what's the shift. And Carly, you talked about voice and that's a brilliant way to distinguish between two narrators is to make them have very either different characteristics, a different way of telling their story different I mean this is very clear because it's a different setting Alice is in a lifeboat Lily's in London so we always know who it is that that we're talking or hearing from for me it just always adds a layer of intrigue depth I love that world building of multiple places and for me as well I wanted to have some contrast to the terror of the lifeboat and the sameness of those scenes stuck in a lifeboat with movement of Lily moving around London, experiencing, connecting with other people, building her world of characters. So there was a lot of consideration about keeping the reader engaged in the two women's stories. And we know they're going to connect. And when they do, that's when these two voices come together and have, but they've earned their their right to do that, if, if you like, in the reader's mind. So yeah, it's it's certainly something to consider if both narrators, if both timelines earn their right to be on the page, then absolutely go for it. I think it, it, it can be a really compelling read if they both work. Amazing advice. Thank you so much, Hazel. Thank you to Carly and Cece for your critique and to Hazel for joining us. For our listeners, get the last lifeboat. Hazel was talking earlier about you want a title that grabs somebody in an airport. This cover's exceptionally striking. As soon as I saw it, I thought Life of Pi, and that was one of my favorite books, and it made me just want to pick it up. So look out for that. We wish you much success with this, Hazel, and we hope to have you back again in the future. Thank you so much. It's been an absolute pleasure. And to everybody listening, keep writing, keep believing that yes is coming. Keep going. And that's it for today's episode. I hope you'll join us for next week's show. In the meantime, keep at it. Remember, it just takes one yes. Call 
calling all memoirists. I'm so excited to let you know that I've put together an incredible all about memoir lineup for Saturday the 11th of May from 10 a.m. to 5 p.m. Eastern Time in which six amazing speakers guide you through everything you need to know to write a memoir that will sell. You'll get opportunities to ask questions of best-selling memoirists while also standing a chance to have your query letter live critiqued during the webinar. To see the awesome lineup and to register, go to biancamaray.com. There's an early bird promotion for the first 50 delegates who sign up. Come and join us and get your memoir groove on.